So last week I shared with you um, a story about how my father likes to prank people and scare people. Well, I think it's fair to say that that gene was passed on to me. Uh, And you might not know this about me, but I truly enjoy being able to get a good scare or a good laugh out of somebody. And uh, so a number of years ago, there was a scary movie coming out, and I won't name which one it was, but it was the typical scary movie with the killer clown and all this other stuff going on. So I had this great idea that um, I was going to take out my cell phone because, you see, my cell phone was linked to my television set. I don't know if any of you have your television set linked to your cell phone. So I decided that I was going to do this, that I was going to kind of subtly scare my wife with a few phrases, and then I would go into the other room, and I did that. I went into the other room. I told her I had to go to the bathroom, and I went into the bathroom, and then while she was sitting alone in a dark room, because we were going to have a movie night, I went, and I took out my phone, and I played a scene out of the scary movie, and all of a sudden, she goes, I hear from the other room her panic and go, ah, she's screaming, and I just come out totally hysterical, totally laughing, and of course I get whacked a couple times by my wife saying, don't do that again, (laughs) and uh, it was such a good time, but you see, I mentioned this story because I think that oftentimes we can get the wrong enemy, or confused with the wrong enemy, that is. You see, in that moment, she thought that something was coming against her, but in reality, it was her husband who was just playing a prank. And today, though, we are going to be talking about the importance of knowing well for ourselves who our enemy is. Who our enemy is. So in order to do that, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. And just as a way of reminder, I've said it a few times already, and I'm going to say it again just because it it bears mentioning once more. That I want to remind everybody that the purpose of this series is to come away with a healthy, biblical understanding of the enemy. We are not to engage in unhealthy fixations over the enemy or of Satan. Rather, we are to deepen our biblical understanding of the spiritual battle we find ourselves in so that we can rightly know our adversary and as well as know how to fight him. Amen? So let's turn once more to 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 8 to 9 to you. So it says in God's word, Be alert of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Read this with me. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So according to this scripture, 
Who is the enemy like? He's like a roaring lion. But you see, I think it's important for us to understand the context in which Peter wrote this letter. If you didn't know who Peter was, and I'm sure many of you do, Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And he was known for being a rather rambunctious man. He would oftentimes leap out into situations unprepared but totally willing to follow Jesus. Jesus wherever he would go. But he was also a man that was knew what great failure was like, as we know within the gospel stories of his betrayal in some ways of denying who Jesus was. But later on in Peter's life, he writes this book, which is titled First Peter, and there's a second Peter as well. And in First Peter, he writes this book to the five Roman churches within the five Roman provinces of Rome. And the main theme of First Peter, if you didn't know it, is perseverance despite persecution. You see, it's believed that he wrote this book sometime around 63 or 64 AD. And that's a really important date because during this time, what ends up happening to the Christian church is the emperor Nero begins persecuting the church. In fact, there's a portion of Rome that is burned down and the emperor wrongly accuses Christians as the culprits of burning down part of this kingdom. And some people believe that he simply burned down part of his kingdom in order to make way for a construction project that he wanted to build and simply named Christians as the culprits. So Peter's writing this letter to the churches in these Roman provinces to encourage their faith. And he would write this letter not long after he would end up becoming a martyr himself. Uh, But he wrote this letter to encourage them to continue to persevere. But in writing it, he gives us a glimpse of what Satan is like, or who Satan is like. And again, he uses this image, this idea of what? A roaring lion. But here's the thing. We know for ourselves that Satan is a common person who is talked about within our culture. Right? And I believe in many ways he's talked about wrongly. That is, the Satan that we sometimes develop an image of in our heads isn't the true biblical Satan that we see throughout Scripture. Now, I believe there's three common portrayals of Satan that have really influenced Western society. And one of those comes from Paradise Lost. So if you didn't know, Paradise Lost is a book that was written by John Milton, a 17th century English writer. And he shows this picture of Satan, and Satan's really this ruler over hell in this image. And I think that that idea has perpetuated, right? That Satan is the ruler of hell. Well, that's not biblically true. The other portrayal that we see of Satan, or at least of the kingdom of darkness and hell, is comes from a book called Paradise, or pardon me, Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno was written by a gentleman named Dante, who is a fourth century Italian writer. 
And just to tell you what Dante thought of the Pope at that time, he actually has the Pope burning in one of the rings of hell and suffering there, just to kind of tell you what he thought about the Catholic Church at that time. But both Dante and John Milton, I would say, even though they have an exaggerated image, uh, a fanciful image of what some of this could be like, Dante writing it as a comedy and John Milton kind of just showing, writing this poetry work. Um, in reality, it's not fully biblical. There's some theological truths there. There's some things that they did that were really good works. Uh, but in reality, it's, it's fanciful. It's not truly the Satan that we come to know in scriptures. And there's some stretches of the truth there. But the last depiction of Satan that I'll give you, and it's by far the worst depiction of Satan, comes from none other than Hollywood, right? Watching movies and seeing these horror movies especially depict Satan or depict the kingdom of darkness. And the problem that we see within the Hollywood depiction of Satan is we see Satan as what? This great adversary of God. It's almost like Satan and God are on equal footing with respect to their power. That Satan is just as omnipresent as God. He's just as omnipotent or omnipotent as God. And really, they're battling it out. It's this wrong idea of dualism between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And when they show this picture of Satan, or at least this dark demonic picture, they almost make it seem like, if anything, the kingdom of darkness is winning, right? When a priest comes in or a pastor comes in to be able to cleanse an individual, he's just barely hanging on and the fight is usually going against him. And if anything, he's shooed off in a way. And it's as if the kingdom of darkness is much more potent than the kingdom of God. We've all seen this picture of Satan, right? And we still see this picture of Satan. And it, for whatever reason, I think it fascinates many of us. So for today, looking at 1 Peter 5 and other scriptures, I want us to come away with a true understanding of who Satan was. And just so you know, this week, um, my mom's actually going to be flying into town. So I, I love my mom and dad. I talk to them almost on a daily basis, if you can believe it. So she called me on Wednesday, and I was still working on my sermon on Wednesday. And she normally asks me, how's it going? What are you up to? And my reply to her was, oh, it's going pretty good. Just been studying about Satan all day. <laughs> So we're going to take a little bit of time to study about Satan and hopefully come away with a biblical, healthy perspective on him so that we don't wrongly allow our minds to wander in directions that are unbiblical and unhealthy to our own faith. So who is Satan in scripture? I'm going to put some instances up on the screen for you of, of Satan within scripture. So Abel should be able to put that up there. So who is Satan? And here are a list of um, popular depictions. Okay, we already passed that, Abel. Um, 
So here are some instances of Satan within Scripture. And there's actually more instances than this. But if you'd like, you could write those down or you can take out your camera phone and take a picture of it. These are, in my opinion, some of the more prominent instances of Satan within Scripture. Now, it's fair to say that some of these instances, I can't fully say whether it is the person of, or of Satan or not. Uh, because if I'm going to be faithful to the Bible, I need to recognize that the person of Satan really is a development within theology. So let me explain that a little bit by Genesis 3.1. So in Genesis 3.1, we see who come up to Adam and Eve in the garden. We see the serpent, right? That's what scripture calls him. He calls him the Naukash in Hebrew. The Naukash means simply a serpent in Hebrew. Now, this serpent, it said, was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the women, Do you, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And most of us know this narrative. And he deceives Adam and Eve into eating from this tree, thus sinning against God. Well, like that first occurrence in Genesis chapter 3, we see many more occurrences of the demonic happening throughout Scripture. Job, I believe, is one of the first occurrences where we see the word Satan come up within Scripture. And if you didn't know this, the Hebrew word Satan was actually a common word within their time. And this is really important to understand this, that the Hebrew word Satan was actually a common word for their time. And that Hebrew word simply meant adversary. So the word Satan simply means adversary. And we see this word Satan being used for other instances that we know are not Satan. So, for, ex for example, if you ever heard of the story of Balaam and his talking donkey, right? It's a funny story. It's great for ch uh, children's ministry if you ever read it. Although there's some terrifying portions of this story that I don't know if kids should, should listen into. Kind of like Noah's Ark, right? We see Noah's Ark and we kind of have this as a cute and cuddly story for kids and animals going two by two in the ark. But in reality, it's kind of a terrifying story. So well, in Balaam and the talking donkey... Um, in this story, there is an angel of the Lord who opposes Balaam because Balaam is not on the right path. So this angel of the Lord opposes him, and this angel is described as what? As opposing him as an adversary, as a Satan onto him. And there's other instances of this within Scripture. So how do we understand how Satan developed as a word? Well, it was actually between what's called the intertestamental period. Between the book of Malachi and the Gospels, Jewish writers began to develop and grow more within their theology and their understanding specifically of Satan. And from that time, they decided to use all of these instances where we see this kingdom of darkness and this figurehead who's leading it 
as the individual of Satan. And he is, during this time, considered the great Satan, right? So what does that mean, of course? That means the great adversary, the great adversary against God. Now, there's a couple of scriptures on there that we're actually going to get back to where we understand some of Satan's origins, or as he's commonly known in other books in, uh, by a different name. So if you didn't know this, within these scriptures, we see Satan being referred to by many other names. So I'll put a list now for you of the many names that Satan is referred to within Scripture. And of course, he's referred to as the adversary, and as we would eventually come to know him as the great adversary. He's also referred to as the father of lies, and as we're going to be looking at within 1 Peter chapter 5 today, he's referred to as what? The Roaring Lion, the adversary in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as a dragon. So even though, though the word Satan isn't used every time, it's believed that all of these names listed here, like the dragon, for instance, in Revelation, is the person of Satan. He's referred to as the tempter. In one of the books of the Old Testament, he's referred to as Belzebul. And if you didn't know, that's a derivative of the Philistines' God, and it simply means Lord of the Flies. He's referred to as the evil one, the enemy, the liar, the ruler of this world, God of this age. And if you could believe it, there's actually more names for Satan that I did not add onto this list. But as you can imagine, not one of these names is cute and cuddly and kind, right? <laughs> not one of these monikers for Satan has anything to do with him being a good person. So how did Satan or our understanding of Satan begin. Was he just always evil? Was he a created being to be evil and to oppose the church? Actually not, not at all. It is a misunderstanding of Hollywood to assume that this force of darkness just always existed. In fact, from the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, we get the, the deepest depictions out of all of Scripture on how Satan's origins began. So if you'd like to, Abel, you can turn back to that list of Scriptures. So Isaiah 14, 12 and uh, Ezekiel 28 have probably the deepest depictions of Satan's origins. And between both of these books, what we come to learn, and I encourage you to read some of these scriptures for yourself, is that Satan, specifically within Ezekiel's book, his depiction is actually linked to the king of Tyre. And this is important to know because oftentimes within scripture... Uh, if we're going to read the Bible faithfully, then we need to understand the literary devices that are used. 
So I say this, and I know that this is very academic today, but it's just important for us to understand this, is that we need to understand the literary devices of Scripture. Sometimes people wrongly say something like this. Well, do you read the Bible literally, Pastor? Uh, and I'll reply to them, of course I do. I'll read it literally when it's literal. I'll read it figuratively when it's figurative. I'll read it allegorically when it's allegorical. I read the scripture with as much seriousness, as much weight, as much attention as I possibly can. But if I'm to be faithful with scripture, then I need to understand the literary devices that the authors use. For example, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew within the Sermon of the Mount, he says what to believers if their eyes are causing them to sin? To pluck them out. And if their hands are causing them to sin, what does he say? To chop them off. Well, any takers today? <laughs> no, of course not. Um, of course we wouldn't do those kinds of things. Why? Because we understand well for ourselves that what Jesus is saying is that we need to have a very serious outlook on sin, right? That we need to treat sin so strongly that we just chop it off out of our lives. That we try to do away with it and rid it as quickly as we possibly can. So the reason why Jesus is saying that is he's saying it figuratively. Because he wants you to be able to understand that we take sin so seriously that it is almost like we should just pluck out our eye right now or chop off our hands. That's how serious we need to take sin. Are you following with me? Amen? Amen. So, like that, and looking back to Ezekiel, what's happening here with Ezekiel is what's called a double entendre within Scripture. And what that means is when Scripture is referring to two different people at the same time. So we see this in, as Jesus is referred to like King David in Psalm 110. But specifically within the book of Ezekiel, Satan is being talked about, or Lucifer is being talked about, while also being linked to the kingdom uh, or, or the ruler of Tyre. And in that depiction of Satan, what we come to understand is that Satan was created as an angel of God. That he was created in all goodness. That this Satan individual, this Lucifer, that he was created to be beautiful. Unlike all of the rest. That in very many ways he was given privileges. And he was given a high ranking among all these other angels. That God really blessed this individual among the angels. But that this individual... He fell to what? To pride. And he rebelled against God. And for that reason, he became what's called a fallen angel. And he led a rebellion against God. And as we understand it, that rebellion was not just by himself, but was with other angels as well. So Satan summed up is he's God's adversary. And by effect, he becomes our adversary. And that really is 
all we see within scripture when it comes to Satan. Again, read these verses to come to your own understandings and to understand for yourself who he is. But the main picture that we see within scripture is that he's somebody that is constantly opposed to the kingdom of God. And that through his pride, he decided to rebel against God, to leave the goodness of God in everything that God gave him. And because of that, he was cast out of heaven. So this great adversary is who we are looking at. And I'm taking the time to develop a a biblical understanding of who he is because I believe that if we are to be faithful to scripture, then we need to understand who he is as well as who he's not so that we can do what? So that we can know our enemy well and fight against him properly so that we don't give him any more attention that he deserves or any dominion in, in, in our lives that is not becoming of his kingdom. So let's go back now to 1 Peter chapter 5. With this in mind, let's read verse 8. It says this, and I'm just going to read the first sentence and we'll carry on from there. Be alert and of sober mind. Be alert and of sober mind. Both of these words here that are used in the Greek, be alert, which means Gregorio uh, in the Greek, it's, it's saying so much more than just to be alert. Be alert's a good translation, but really what we can come to understand from this is to be the kind of person that is both watchful literally and figuratively, to be vigilant, to be awakeful, to be watchful in what is going on around us. And this other phrase that is used of sober mind it, it roughly in Greek translates to nepho, nepho, or nepho, sorry, nepho. This word nepho means of uncertain affinity, to abstain from. So when it says of sober mind, it makes, it makes a distinction here to have a clear and healthy mind as you look. So both of these are very important if we're going to understand how to battle against the kingdom of darkness. And specifically, what is Peter really saying here between be alert and be of sober mind is what I think he's trying to say is what we would call in today's world to have situational awareness. Raise your hand if you've heard of that term before, having situational awareness. So especially if you're in law enforcement or if you have any background in knowing somebody who is in the military, this term situational awareness actually developed out of World War one. And the concept of it was to be aware of your surroundings in a situation of battle. If you didn't know, it was a deadly endeavor to be a military pilot, specifically within the British uh, forces. If you didn't know this, in the early stages of military combat within aviation, 42% of the individuals in the the British Military Airmen Corps um, died from injuries suffered in training alone. 
42%. So almost one out of every two people suffered fatal injury just from training, not even fighting the enemy. And then if you were lucky enough to survive that, 58% of the people died in combat from their wounds as um, people within uh, airmen. So this concept of be aware of situations that you're putting yourself in began to develop and grow from that as there was this great need and great struggle within the military to handle situations like that. I think in some ways this is our best understanding that we need to be able to come to when thinking of what 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 is trying to say to us. That we need to be situationally aware. That we in some ways need to be able to be alert and be sober-minded so that when we find ourselves in a situation, we know how to act. We know we're prepared. Now, I'll give you an example of this out of my own life. There have been many times where uh, I've gone through a situation and I just feel like I'm getting beat up on every level. Just a few weeks ago, I was in fact feeling this constant just oppression in my life where I felt this 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 depressed attitude where all of a sudden I was reliving all of these emotions that I thought I already had dealt with, that I already thought that God had done away with in my life. And then finally, after probably three days, I, I wised up and I realized, you know what? I think the enemy is attacking me. So I started praying against the enemy in that moment. And it was crazy because just like that, it was like all those feelings started to go away. And in fact, I received um, a letter unrelated to this situation that I was um, receiving from one of our congregants, Barb, who went to camp not too long ago and really felt like the enemy was attacking and, and wisely understood that and then went to the Lord. And Barb, if I'm understanding what that letter that you sent me said, you were able to identify that. And, and because of that, you were able to realize, this can't be. This needs to stop. I need to pray against the enemy. I need to go to God and his word. So the situational awareness that I think God is calling us to is the kind where we realize that when we're getting attacked, that instead of focusing our frustration on a person, an organization, um, just getting angry at somebody else or getting angry at God, that instead we're wise enough to realize maybe the enemy's attacking me right now. Maybe there's some spiritual warfare going on that I don't know, that I can't see, that I just need to go to the Lord and say, God, help me in this situation. Help me to fight against the enemy right now. And that, in my belief, is what, what Peter is encouraging us as believers to do. Because here's the reality. If we're not situationally aware or spiritually aware, then what's the alternative? What's the alternative? You see, the, my, the, my pastor's definition for being situationally aware would be having good perception for the environment and the events around you. How the environment will impact you presently and in the future. That's, that's my definition. But if, 
if you don't have spiritual awareness or, or situational awareness, then what the alternative is, in my belief, is you have spiritual drowsiness. Spiritual drowsiness. And a spiritually drowsy person has no perceptions of fighting against the kingdom of darkness. There's somebody that just allows the enemy to beat them up and to hurt them in life. So you see in 1 Peter 5, it says specifically to be alert in a sober mind because of what reason? Because your enemy, not just my enemy, but your enemy, right? This wasn't just the enemy of Peter or Paul or the other disciples. This was all of our enemy, right? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what is the devil's goals? His goals is to what? To ruin you, to devour you, to destroy you. As we mentioned last week, John chapter 10, verse 10. To do what? To steal, to kill, to destroy to bring down your life, to make you less than what God has called you to be. And you know, I remember when I first started reading this scripture. And I remember in church when I was younger, I was told that the devil cannot harm believers. And in fact, they would use this verse to let me know that, that he can only roar, that he can only show his teeth. But I think Peter is actually making it clear that the devil can bring harm to Christians. Um, the, the famed theologian, Wayne Grudem, uh, writes in one of his commentaries, Peter here views Satan as a cunning and evil personal being who has the ability and the propensity to attack and presumably harm, what? Christians. So make no mistake, church, that according to 1 Peter chapter 5, the enemy wants to bring harm to you in your life. Now, I think that it's important for me now to just hover over this for a second and to acknowledge a couple of things. That yes, the enemy wants to bring harm over your life, but guess who's still sovereign? God. And it's wrong for us to think in ourselves that, that somehow Satan can just do whatever the heck he wants to us. That's not true. God is still sovereign over our lives. But there's this interplay within scripture between God's sovereignty and what? Human free will. So we need to also respect and understand for ourselves the importance that, yes, God is in control, but also we are morally responsible for our own lives. And in fact, I would even use this word, I would go even further and say that we have a duty, a moral obligation to follow God and to live for him. Now, I think sometimes when we think about the enemy and we think about him attacking our lives, we think about that in kind of a boxed understanding where we think that, 
what the enemy attacking us is always some version of us being tempted by something, right? That we think that that is the main way that the enemy attacks us, is, is if you're a guy or a girl, he brings forth that one thing that you struggle with and dangles it in front of you. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true. I actually 100% believe that is one form in which the enemy attacks. But I also believe that the enemy attacks in other ways. Make no mistake, Christian, that if you do not take time to be alert, to be of sober mind, to realize the battle that we are in as Christians, then what could happen within our lives is we could end up failing to recognize that the enemy wants to put us in a little tiny box. And what I mean by that is not just by the sins that we commit, but by the deeds that we leave undone. Do you understand what I'm saying there? You see, we narrowly view the enemy in our lives as just what sins do we commit? But in reality, and just as we read out of the Blue Hymnal in 691, that oftentimes some of the wrong things that we do in our lives are in action. It's not just the actions that we commit, but the inaction. The fact that God oftentimes calls us to do things, and we just don't even do them. And look... This fleshes itself out in many different ways. But something that I firmly believe as your pastor is that God has uniquely created and called you to be his church. That God has gifted you in very many ways to bring about a reflection of his kingdom here on earth. You know, the fact, for instance, this week that we're going to mobilize people together in order to make meals for Tim and Fran is an example. It's an expression of us being God's good people to others. And there's many stories that we have within the history of this church that exemplify that. But if we look deep down into our own personal lives, there's probably moments in our life as well where whether we realize it or not, we've become ineffective. Meaning we've focused maybe wrongly on building our own kingdom here on earth rather than God's kingdom. And you see, I believe, church, that the Lord wants us to have a dutiful response to living out his kingdom here on earth. Make no mistake, That if you have breath in your lungs, God wants to use you to glorify his name. He wants to use you to be able to magnify who he is. To be an extension of Jesus to somebody else. And I think that the enemy is just as pleased with somebody that is ineffective than with somebody who is just sinning. Because both of them are a travesty in their own rights. And if you have been somebody who, through one reason or another, has become totally ineffective, 
And what I mean by that is that you're a person who doesn't serve the church. You're a person who doesn't stay within God's word. You're a person who doesn't try to be an extension of Jesus to others. Then know that the enemy is very pleased with you being in that state. Because why? Because you are essentially ineffective. And God, I believe, wants us to be effective for his glory. So what does Peter leave us with in verse 9? He says specifically as a reminder to us to resist him, to stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So how do we, church, stand firm in our faith? Well, I think in, in many ways, in order to know how to fight, Peter, Peter, for whatever reason, doesn't give us a long explanation of how to fight the enemy. If you want to learn how to fight the enemy and how to stand firm, truly, I encourage you to not miss next week. Because next week, we're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 12 through 18. And we're probably going to break that up into a two-part message. But we're going to talk specifically about that next week. But what does Peter at least offer us? He offers us a, 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 he exhorts us to stand firm. And I would say that, that ways that we remain rooted in life is by staying in God's word. Christian, if you're not staying in God's word, you are in a weakened state. That's just, that's just truth. By the fellowship of other believers. Because you know what? Iron sharpens iron. And there are men and women in here who can encourage you, who can pray for you, and who you can do the same things for. And I encourage you that if you haven't joined a small group yet or haven't gotten plugged in, in some form of fellowship within the church, that you would consider doing that. Uh, one way that you can do that is by joining the Douglases, and there's also a women's group that meets in our church for those that would prefer that option. Another way is by service, by serving the Lord and just doing things for him. Hey, maybe even weeding <laughs> this upcoming Saturday could be a way to serve and worship the Lord because uh, we want to make our, our, our building beautiful for him. By meditation, meditating on God, meditating on his word. I'm not talking about the Eastern empty your mind nonsense, which truly is nonsense, but I mean literally focusing your thoughts on God and the goodness of what he teaches us. By repentance, by just simply asking God for forgiveness and turning away from the sins that we commit. And of course, through prayer. And I, I would say any habit that strengthens your resolve for living for the Lord, for being a part of what God wants you to be a part of, will be able to cause you to stand firm. But Peter ultimately wants everybody within the church to know this final thought. That we do not stand alone. Amen? And that's our big idea for today. That we do not stand alone. We do not stand alone. Church, you do not stand alone. And Peter reminds us of this in verse 9 by saying that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
So instead of having the wrong mentality of constantly being the kind of person in church, I'm preaching to myself. I do this too. Where sometimes we just, something bad happens and it's like, woe is me and we're moping around just like Charlie Brown. And we can't forget that this is what everybody is going through. Why? Because the kingdom of darkness does not want the kingdom of light to prevail. So you have to understand that you live in a fallen world, that sin is real, and that the enemy is real. And because of that, there's going to be moments of life where, yes, we have some high times, but there's also going to be some low times. But take heart in knowing that you're not alone in those low times, that other believers throughout the world are experiencing those same troubles that you find yourself in, which makes the reason for fellowship and community so much more important. If someone ever tells you, well, you know, I like Christianity, I just don't like the institution, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church, that is the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. Why? Because every single Bible letter was written with what? A group of people in mind. Every single letter, epistle, is written with a group of people in mind. This is meant to happen in community, and it's why Peter takes the time to say, stay encouraged, because other people around the world are going through what you're going through right now, which is why we need to be open and honest with each other about the struggles that we face. Why? so that we could pray for each other, so that we can bless each other, so that we can encourage each other as we go through our dark times. Because the enemy, he wants to win. He wants to devour you. He wants to be able to cripple your faith. But I believe that in this church, we are not gonna let that happen, amen? And we're not gonna leave anybody behind. And we're gonna do our best to stand firm not individually, but locked, united, and together against the enemy. So remember this, we do not stand alone. We stand united with each other, and most importantly, we stand united with our Lord, who is always with us. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Let's pray.